Last Sunday, we began to look at the high priestly prayer in John 17, and we focused on the first part where Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. And ultimately, what he prayed for was his own glorification. He he was asking the Father as he completes his ministry to receive him through the ascension to place him in that place of, of glory, the right hand, and that he might receive back the glory that he's always had. And so... What a great text that we looked at. Really, it's a model for our own lives. We, we should be entirely about the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, that should be the, the life goal of us. This morning, we're going to be focusing on the second part of the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples. And uh, so if you guys could, please take your Bibles and turn over to John 17. We're going to be attempting to tackle a pretty large section verses 6 through 19, and I think it's befitting that we pray once more before we actually get to work. Father, we graciously, or not graciously, we humbly acknowledge your graciousness and your goodness and your mercy. We just sang about your mercies being new every day, and we acknowledge that these things, these blessings that we have, we acknowledge your holiness as well. And uh, it's because of your holiness that, that everything else kind of falls in line. But we ask that you just instruct us during this time, that you teach us uh, through the Holy Spirit, that our helper, our comforter would help and comfort us, uh, that he would exhort us and train us and teach us your very word, and that we would be... Uh, we would become not just mere hearers, but doers of the word. And um, so we kind of humble ourselves now and place ourselves at your feet, and we ask that you instruct us and help us to be free from anxiousness or any kind of distractions that have been plaguing us and following us everywhere we go. Every one of us is living life and has different things that we're dealing with, and we're not asking, Lord, that we be divorced from those circumstances. They are there for our training, but we just ask that we would be able to focus, have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive your truth this morning, that you would penetrate in the deepest recesses of our soul with the word, which is a double-edged sword, and uh, that you would convict and edify and sanctify. And so uh, we humble ourselves and and profess that and give you that right now. Have your way with us and be glorified in all that is said and done here today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look back at verse 4 in chapter 17, Jesus said that he, he made this great statement. He said that he had accomplished the work the Father had given him to do. We looked at that last week and, and, and we were focusing primarily on his his perfect life and, and his death and his burial and resurrection and, and, and those sorts of components of his work. And so in verse 6a, as we move forward, he gives an actual example of his work. See, back in verse 4, he didn't describe what his work was. We had to kind of identify what it is on our own, and we know what it is. But for the most part, here in verse 6a, he really points to one aspect of his work. So we pick it up at verse 6a. Here's what Jesus says next. They're sitting along the roadside or the trail or something of that nature as they walk to Gethsemane. He's got his 11 disciples with him. And this is what he says next. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And he says this, yours they were and you gave them to me. So we stop right there. So the father had assigned or given Jesus many works to accomplish. I mean, in his, if you want to call it a job description, Jesus had a lot of things that he had to come down to accomplish for our redemption. So I think of it as the Father assigning particular tasks and things for Jesus to accomplish so that we could be redeemed. And some of those things would include like obedience to the Mosaic law. He had to obey it, not just obey it, but obey it perfectly. Obviously, he had to die as a sacrifice for our sin. He had to rise in victory, etc. So those are the kind of fundamental things that he did. But one such work that's rarely talked about is what is, he identifies right here in this verse, and that is 
the manifestation of the Father's name. He literally came down from heaven to manifest the Father's name to those whom the Father had given him. This is one of his divine works. This is one of his tasks. And as I said, we don't typically think of him doing this. We think of him dying and rising and those things. And what does it mean to manifest the Father's name? Well, whenever you talk about manifesting a name in Scripture, it means making one known in the totality of who they are. It's not just about teaching. Jesus didn't come just to teach his disciples about the, you know, maybe God's name Yahweh or Adonai or something like that. It has to do with revealing the entirety of who one is, revealing who they are in name and in personhood. And so part of Jesus' work was to come down and reveal the Father. That's what it means to manifest His name, to make the Father known. And that's really incredible when you think about how religious it was back then. You would think that people already knew who the Father was, Religion was being practiced in various ways, especially in Judaism, and yet seemingly having nothing, just not knowing who the Father is at all in that religion. So Jesus comes down to to make the Father known, to manifest who the Father is or whom the Father is to those whom the Father has given him. To what people per se, it is literally Jesus comes to manifest the Father to Not just anyone, but to the people whom the Father gave him, not just gave him, but gave him out of the world is how Jesus describes it here. So you get the idea of a particular people, out of all the people in the world, out of all the entire populations for all time, those people, one particular group of people being plucked out of the rest and then given to the Father, and those are the ones that Jesus manifests himself to. And and I believe it was Thomas... Or possibly Philip. Actually, it was Thomas who had great difficulty with this reality earlier that night during the Last Supper. He, he said, why are you only manifesting yourself to us? And Jesus said, essentially, that's why I've come. And so Thomas had great difficulty with this. And, and people today have great difficulty with this clear doctrine because they think that Jesus literally came to manifest himself to every living person for all time. And that's clearly not what the Bible teaches. He came to manifest himself to those whom the Father gave him, whom the Father took out of the world to give to Jesus. That's who he came to make the Father known to. So a question that arises here, according to this text, which is really interesting, right? You have to be thinking now, like, so is Jesus, like, literally referring to the entire elect here, to every true believer, disciple for all time? Is that what he's saying here? Is that who he's referring to? Everyone that he's going to be saved, every elect person? Well, yes and no. Yes, because the entire elect are taken out of the world by the Father and given to Jesus. So yes, in that sense. Yes, because Jesus absolutely manifests himself to the entire elect, But no, because he spoke of these people here in past tense. What does he say? I have manifested, like this is accomplished. I have came to do what you commanded me to do, is what he's saying. So he was only referring to whom he had manifested the Father to up to that point. And it's even more specific than that. Now think about, if if he's referring to the entire elect, then then you've got an issue with the past tense verse of the word manifested. He has not yet manifested the Father to the entire elect. Now I understand on the Father's side of things, he has, because the Father doesn't exist in time and space. Get your mind around that. But in real time, this is not, in in, in Jesus' particular moment, and even today, this has not yet happened. There are, and were then, elect people in the world who had not yet had Jesus manifest the Father to them. We have that, you had that issue then. In fact, 3,000 of Jesus had not manifested his name, uh, the Father's name to them. That occurred on the day of Pentecost after Jesus said this, so that hadn't been accomplished yet. So what I'm saying to you is that this is a, a past tense use. He's speaking of a particular group. He had already done this task with them. And if you think about it, there are elect people who haven't even been born yet, right? There are people 
who will be born into particular generations, this one, the next, whatever, that are elect that will be, have Jesus manifest the Father to them. So this is not a completed work here universally. If Jesus had manifested the Father to the entire elect, then the fullness of the Gentiles would be in. Because Jesus manifests the Father only to the elect, and if he had accomplished this, then all of the elect are saved and in. All Israel is saved. Romans 11, 25, and 26, those verses there, they're complete, they're finished. So this is not a, a completed thing. He's speaking of a, a, a unique group. In other words, verse 6, 8, is not, it does in a sense point indirectly to the entire elect, but it points specifically to a smaller group within the elect. Well, who is this mystery group? It is the men who are with him right now. He is speaking specifically of the 11 disciples who were walking with him toward Gethsemane. These 11 men were hand-selected, so to speak, in eternity past, predestined to salvation, predestined to have the Father predestined to have himself manifested to them through Jesus Christ. That's who he's speaking of here. Yes, the Lord had manifested or revealed the Father to them, the 11 that are there with him. Now, that's not to say that he hadn't done that with several others, according to the Gospels. And we see that not just these 11 were saved. There was 120 in the upper room. And How did he do this? How, does, how did Jesus manifest the Father to them, to the 11? Well, he did it by revealing his own divine identity, his own close divine association with the Father. In other words, Jesus manifested the Father to them by manifesting himself to them. Earlier that evening, he told Philip, he says this to Philip. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus is kind of taken aback and saying, wow, you really haven't learned much up to this point, have you? Give me back the sop and the bread. You're not taking communion with me. You don't even understand who I am. He didn't say that. That's my... He, he literally has... Jesus says, I will reveal the Father to you. And, and, and now this particular disciple has a big issue with that. He's acting as if the Father's never been revealed to him. And he literally says to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. So, so Philip sitting there with Jesus celebrating you know, the Lord's Supper for the first time, the establishment of it, as he's interacting with Jesus, he is, in a sense, seeing the Father and interacting with the Father because of the oneness of Christ with the Father. Yeah, they're two distinct people, but they're both God. And just prior to going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And he even went as far as to say, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John 10, 30 and verse 38. You see the oneness there. So we're talking about how Jesus manifests the Father to him. He does it by manifesting himself. Consider the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. You remember them. We, we covered them. Each one reveals the deity of Christ. Each one reveals the perfect divine union he has with the Father. Every time Jesus said, I am, each of those seven occurrences, he is literally declaring who he is, the Son of God. He is declaring where he came from, the Father. And he is declaring whom he was returning to, the Father. In each of those instances, this is what he's doing when he says this. And, and so, so Jesus manifested the Father to the disciples by verbally revealing who he is in close association with the Father but he also backed those declarations with divine signs and wonders, performing miracles in, in, in such a way that the world had never even seen. Even the religious elite of that day said, wow, a guy who speaks like that and does those things had to have come from God, even though they rejected him. And Nicodemus made that clear to Jesus in John chapter 3, where he comes to him and says, we know you've come from God. Nobody, nobody who, anyone who's come from God, the only way they could do these things is they'd had to have come from God. They even came to that realization. 
So he backs his verbal declarations with divine signs and wonders, and in just a, a few of them, he fed thousands with only a few fish and loaves, twice, by the way, 5,000 the first time, 4,000 the next time, but probably more like 25,000 total because the men and women aren't included in the recording of Scripture there. He walked on water. I've actually attempted this. You get at one side of the yard and you run as fast as you can at the pool, and then you step out on the water. It didn't work. He literally walked on water, and, and not just a swimming pool like I attempted to do, which did not work, on a sea, on a lake. He calmed two violent storms, by the way. In the Gospel of Mark, there's two that he did that with. We tend to think there's one. Two times he silences a storm. One, he shouts at it and rebukes it with his own words. He stops a violent storm that was about to sink the boat they were on. And the second time, he just gets into the boat and it calms down. He raised the dead, Lazarus and others. He exercised demons. In other words, he cast demons out of people. That's something I've never attempted to do, nor would I ever attempt to do it. That's a, a terrifying thing to me. But Jesus did it without any effort at all. I mean, he could look at somebody. He cured leprosy. And this was something that people would not do back then. They would steer clear of the lepers. And he cured it with a word or with a touch. He actually touched a leper, which was allegedly rendered Jesus unclean. And actually what happened was Jesus rendered a series of lepers clean, actually, through a touch. He healed so many different maladies and things. It's just, it's just tough to, to, to focus on all of them. He transfigured on the Mount of Olives, thus revealing his divine glory in that very moment, three of his disciples were able to see the glorified Christ, and they had never seen anything like this. In fact, Peter just started rambling. Well, we'll set some tents up for you here, and God silenced him. This is my son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, shut up, Peter. Okay. There are so many ways that he manifested the Father to his disciples verbally, and, and backing those verbal declarations up with miracles. I would just say through unprecedented preaching and miracles. And I say unprecedented preaching because nobody had ever heard preaching like that before. Not even the Old Testament prophets came close to this guy. Jesus preached in a way that had just never, I mean, with just such authority. Even the scribes said, nobody preaches with authority like that. Now, we don't care for his message, but nobody preaches like that. Through unprecedented preaching, unprecedented miracles, Jesus manifested or revealed himself and his Father to the disciples. So this is the way that he manifested. He said it, right? This work is accomplished. I have manifested your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. How did he do it? Unprecedented preaching through unprecedented miracles. He revealed the, himself, thus revealing the Father. And in verses 6b through 8, he provides proof of this accomplishment. He literally declares, because remember, he's praying right now. He's praying to the Father, and he literally prays the proof before the Father. And we, we see several things here. Number one, these would be the fruits that show that he accomplished this aspect of his ministry, okay? So the first thing we see is the disciples' obedience. We see that in verse B. He says this of the disciples, and they have kept your word. So Jesus was not saying that the disciples had, you know, kept and obeyed the entire Mosaic law, every jot and mark of it. They had not kept God's word entirely, so to speak. He's not saying that. In fact, your word, you see how it says at the end of 6b, they have kept your word, you might want to highlight that, your word refers to the essential teachings about salvation. What are the essential teachings about salvation? What do we call that? The gospel. The gospel had actually been given to Jesus by the Father. We see this in verse 8. Those are your words you gave me to speak. And back in John 12, 49. 
They were obeying the gospel. When Jesus preached the gospel, he was preaching the Father's word because the gospel had been given to Jesus by the Father. And when a person obeys the gospel, he or she obeys the Father's word. In fact, it says in the book of Acts, God is commanding people throughout the world to repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is the Father's good news about his Son. So when somebody obeys the gospel, they are essentially obeying the Father's word. And this is precisely what happened with the disciples. They obeyed Jesus' teachings. They obeyed what he said, the gospel, and therefore kept the Father's word. So the disciples' obedience shows that Jesus had manifested the Father to them. So their obedience proves that Jesus accomplished this. What would their disobedience show? It would show the opposite. It would show a breakdown somewhere. But they obeyed, or they, they totally obeyed the Father's word through the Son, the gospel. And that is a proof that Jesus accomplished this. The second thing that's listed here is the disciples' understanding. We see this in verses 7 and 8a. It's not just about obedience, but there's some understanding here that's occurred. Jesus says this of them as he continues to testify to his accomplishment. Now they know, speaking of the disciples, that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Jesus, in his prayer here, tells the Father that the disciples had come to understand certain truths about his divine identity that his words had come from the Father, and that he had come from the Father. This is what Jesus is testifying back to the Father. And back in chapter 16, verse 30, the disciples actually boasted about their understanding. They had said this, Now we know that you know all things. This is why we believe you came from God. So this was a boast that got corrected by Jesus, but they're still testifying to the fact that they understand who Jesus is and where he came from and where his words came from. So there is an understanding present here within them. And that understanding shows that Jesus had manifested the Father to them. Ignorance would show the opposite, right? If they don't understand who he is, who he came from, where his message came from, and they've got the ignorance of those things, then Jesus did not accomplish this. But he did because they have understanding. Thirdly, we have the disciples' faith. Verse 8b, the disciples' faith. He says this, And they have believed that you sent me. Jesus tells the fathers that the disciples also believed in his condescension and incarnation. The fact that he stepped out of heaven and came down here and became a man. This shows that they understand and they believe that He is indeed God. It shows that they do indeed believe that the Father had sent Jesus from heaven into this world. And their belief in Him, their faith in Him, in His person, in His personhood, in the work that He's going to accomplish, which they didn't have a perfect understanding of, but they were kind of there in an elementary sense. Their belief in Him... It, that he was sent, it shows that Jesus had manifested the Father to them. If they didn't believe who Jesus said he is, that he had come from the Father, then unbelief would therefore show the opposite, right? So you have those three things happening there. You have, you have their faith, which is a testimony to Jesus accomplishing this. You have their understanding, their knowledge, that is a testimony to Jesus accomplishing this. And you have their obedience, which testifies to Jesus having accomplished this. Now, I think it's important that we understand a couple things before we move on. First, Jesus was fully aware of how weak and immature the disciples were in each of these particular areas as he's praying to the Father. 
Jesus is not saying Heavenly Father or, or Father, uh, they, they have totally arrived in their obedience. They have perfect understanding and their faith, they could move mountains with it. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Uh, just minutes earlier, he rebuked them for overestimating the strength of their faith. <laughs> Chapter 16, verses 31 and 32. Oh, you, you believe in me now? Okay, that's good. Well, just so you know, when uh, we get up to the garden there and I get arrested, you guys are going to jam. You're going to leave me alone. How's that doing for your faith? We would never do that. Of course, they did it. He had just rebuked them. So, so Jesus is acknowledging these things about them, but he's not falsely testifying to them in any sense. In fact, an hour or two earlier in the upper room, he basically launched Peter into the shadow realm for grossly underestimating his courage. Right? Chapter 13, verses 37 to 38. I would, you know, I, I will die with you, Lord. I tell you this time before 3 a.m., you're going to deny me three times. Huh? I will, I will die for you, Jesus. Well, you know, by the end of the night, you're going to go ahead and deny me. Not once, not twice. Strike three. Grossly overestimating his courage. So, so Jesus knows. He, he knew that his disciples' obedience, their understanding, their faith were, were infantile. They, they, they were elementary. They were the beginnings of these things. If they were weak, Jesus understood this. So that's the first thing we need to recognize. Jesus isn't proclaiming, he's not being unrealistic here. He's stating facts, but these men are still very weak in these areas. And second, and I think this is why I made this first point. This is what really gives me great encouragement. Secondly, in this prayer here, Jesus does not focus on the disciples' weaknesses or foibles at all. None of their inconsistencies or weaknesses or immaturity or any of that, those things are aired out in this prayer. Not one. Not one. Listen to Robert Trail's commentary. He says, Jesus tells all the good he can about the disciples and covers their failings. How poorly had they received his word. How weak and staggering was their faith. How often had he reproved them sharply for their unbelief and other faults. Yet there is not a word of this as Jesus represents them to his father. Wow. At no place in this high priestly prayer, especially in 6 through 19, does Jesus say, they obey but pathetically. They understand, but in an infantile manner. They have faith, but it couldn't move a cricket. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do that anywhere in here. And, and, and in my opinion, Jesus' focus on the disciples' good here should shape the way we pray for others, shouldn't it? When we pray, do we mention the good things folks do? And, and even thank the Father for those things, the good that people do? Or do we focus primarily on their deficiencies, their shortcomings, their sins and these sorts of things? I am not telling you not to pray for people holistically. You, you need to pray for people's weaknesses and things. Bring those things before the Father. But how often do we actually discuss or describe the good things that people do to the Father? How often do we praise the Father for the good that people do? Even an unregenerated, non-saved boss whom God has put in your life to be a blessing to you in some way, shape, or form, or to challenge you. See, when I think about my own prayer life, I pray for a plethora of things, but I tend to gravitate toward what I believe to be the more essential needs. But basically what ends up happening is I just kind of drowned out the foibles and things that I think God needs to correct or minister to over the good things that people do, especially among the brethren. So, so, so when we come to the Father in prayer and we're invited to do that, we don't go through any mediator. We go through Christ, essentially, but we just come to, we just come to the Father in prayer. How frequently do we say, you know what, Father, I am thankful for my employer. I, I know he doesn't know you, and I'm praying he comes to know you, but you have used that man to be such a blessing, and here's how he's been a blessing. 
or for some brother or sister in Christ. I'm, I'm so thankful, Lord, for the way you use Brenda in my wife's life. She's a constant source of encouragement, a stalwart of faith. How often do we do that? Because that's what Jesus did here. That's what he prayed. That's how he prayed. Just put it out there to you. You're already going, oh, I can't go any further. Hey, we want to be like Jesus. We got to do what Jesus did, right? Amen? Let's make sure that when we pray that we bring up the good that people are doing, especially that of the brethren, those are brothers and sisters. In verses 9 through 11a, Jesus describes who he's praying for here and why he's praying for them. Now, he's already been describing who he's praying for, but he kind of does that again here. And he gives the rationale for why. Listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. And he says this, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. 11a, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Here, Jesus tells the Father that he is, he is not praying for the world, but for those whom the Father has given him. And like before, this does, in a sense, refer to the entire elect because they were chosen by the Father and, you know, taken out of the world and, and given to Jesus. You know, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, John 10.29. But the Lord, however, is pointing to a specific group within the elect again. He is, once again, pointing to the 11 disciples. This is whom he is praying for. They are the them at the beginning of verse 9 there. I am praying for them. It's as if he's pointing to the 11. And Father, I am praying for these guys right here. Notice how Jesus describes them as belonging to both the Father and to the Son. I love this. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. He was communicating his divine oneness and unity with the Father once again. Why? I mean, they belong to me, they belong to you. This is what he's saying. He's communicating his oneness, his divine oneness, or his divinity. Or why is he doing this before them? Because remember, they're sitting there listening to him pray. He's doing it to bolster their faith, to strengthen their faith in the reality that he is indeed God, the sent one. At the end of verse 10, Jesus identifies a distinguishing mark in the elect. Now, this applies to the 11, but it applies to all the elect. Kind of jumps back and forth between all of us and that specific group. But this is a distinguishing mark of the entire elect. And what does he say? I am glorified in them. That is a distinguishing mark in the true Christian, in the true believer, in the true disciple, in a person who is actually elect. They glorify Jesus Christ. In other words, the elect glorify Jesus. This is their life's ultimate goal, their life's ambition, their number one quest. It is to bring Christ glory in, in everything, whether they eat or drink or in everything, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. This is probably one of the most distinguishing marks of a truly elect person. If somebody says, I doubt that I'm elect, how do I know? Do you glorify Christ? Yeah, my whole life is about that. You're elect. Because in the reprobate, there's no desire at all to glorify Christ or in those who have not yet been saved. I mean, Jesus is not glorified in the reprobate. He's not glorified in the not yet saved. He isn't. Why? Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews eleven six. 6, right? Somebody who doesn't have faith in Christ, they don't believe in him. They don't believe in how he, the, the reality of who he is, his, his person and work. They don't believe in that. How can they possibly glorify one they don't believe in? 
It's an oxymoron. In verse 11a, Jesus gives the rationale why he is praying for his disciples. And these disciples were glorifying Christ. Why? Or what's the rationale? It is because he is about to return to the Father and leave them in a dangerous world. That's why. Right? He even says, I'm, I'm not even, in a sense, he's not even here anymore. I am no longer in the world. He's still in the world at this point, but he's basically saying, I'm about to leave. And when I leave, they're in a sense on their own. And Jesus knows that the Holy Spirit's coming, but that's 50 days later. Now, Jesus interacts with them in between. He leaves 10 days before the Pentecost comes. But for the most part, he knows that he's physically leaving them. And these are his these men, these are his apostles. Apostle, what does apostle mean in Greek? It means sent one. The, these men are going to be the ones who carry on his ministry. Jesus even said earlier that night, you will do even greater things. They're not going to outperform him in miracles, but there's going to be a greater frequency of things that happen. And then when you think of the church as a whole and all the gospel preaching and all the things they've done and all the evangelism, it supersedes what Jesus did in his three years. I should say 33 years. And up to this point, Jesus has been their teacher. Jesus has been their guide. Jesus has been their protector. How much persecution have you seen come their way while Jesus was with them during their ministry? None! But there was tons and tons of persecution coming at that group. But who took it all? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was nailed to a cross. There should have been 12 plus the other two, what, 14 crosses up there. They should have all been killed. But he's the one that took it. He's the one that suffered the persecution. Why? Because they weren't aiming for them? No, they were, but Jesus took it. Jesus protected them. He protected them spiritually and he protected them physically. He did. And yet, he's their teacher, guide, and protector, and, and now he's physically leaving, so he's concerned about their protection. He's concerned about their future and their safety and their ministry. This is a, a genuine concern represented in this prayer of, disciple toward, of Jesus toward his disciples. And in verses 11b through 19, this is precisely what he prays for. Remember that the purpose of this particular section of the high priestly prayer is to pray for the disciples. But in the ultimate sense, the primary purpose is to pray for their protection. This is what he does. I mean, who better, if you're leaving, who better to entrust the disciples to than the God of the entire universe, the Father of all glory and might and power? And this is what he does here. This is precisely what he does. He basically petitions the Father to do four things for his disciples. But the general nature of the section is protection. Firstly, this is the first of four things that he prays for the Father to do for them. He asks the Father, he prays to the Father to protect them spiritually. And we see this in verse 11b and in verse 12. I know I've, I've got the order, I've moved the order, but... And I'm not saying the word is wrong here. I'm probably wrong for moving it. But in 11b, he says something of the, to the effect of protecting them spiritually. And then in 12, he reiterates, so I just moved it. And I want you to just contemplate how important this is. The first thing he prays for in his prayer, we know it's about protection, but it's about their spiritual lives. It's about their souls. It's about the salvation that they have, that they have obtained. There is an order here. And one of the things that really gets my goat is the downplay of the seriousness of spiritual matters, especially among my own kind, men. 
there is nothing more important to us than us, our spiritual lives and our soul. And yet countless men think earning a dollar is more important or doing this is more important or golf is more important. And I say this because they, you know, their church attendance tends to be pretty sporadic. You know, I've known guys for years who just choose to go to that physical job and, and they understand their responsibility as a Christian husband. I, I like this aspect of They understand that they need to make money, they need to be a provider and all that, but they at the same time sacrifice being in the house of the Lord every Sunday, if not every, every other, if not that once or whatever. They sacrifice that to, to be at the job, therefore sacrificing their spiritual life in a sense for a physical job. And I'm telling you today, the spiritual is more important than the physical that we are to be about soul care first. Now, most wives out there are going to appreciate the fact that their husband turns a dollar and works hard and all that, but I can't tell you how many wives I've counseled who are just totally upset about the lack of spiritual development or leadership there in their husbands because their husbands choose to sacrifice what should be first for something that's about third or fourth down or maybe second. See, husbands, we, we have this... And godly men who are wanting to be husbands later, you probably shouldn't. But anyways, if you're, you know, if you're thinking about doing that, because marriage is hard, you need to put the spiritual first. Because that's what's going to be best for you, and that's what's going to be best for your spouse, and that's what's going to be best for your children if you have some later on. Don't sacrifice that which is spiritual for that which is physical, temporal, and temporary. Jobs and money are temporary but your soul is forever. I've seen this way too many times. In the order in which Jesus prays, he prays for them spiritually first. And that tells us something, doesn't it? We better take that aspect of who we are more serious than other things. And sometimes we don't. And Jesus says this, and I love how he opens up this, this part of his prayer here. This is really where he prays for them. He says, Holy Father... How many times does that phrase appear in the entire Bible? Once, and it's right there. He calls Father, he calls his Father, Holy Father. You are unlike anyone, is what Jesus says. You are holy, completely unlike anything. You are completely separated in a class of your own, is what he declares to his Father. He says, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me. He is saying, Father, protect them spiritually. I have manifested your name to them. I have made you known to them. Protect that in them. In other words, don't let them go astray and go after some other name. Let them be about you, Holy Father, and you alone. Because when they are about him, they are about Jesus. Remember the oneness. Keep them in your name. Translates literally as protect them spiritually. Jesus is in a sense saying, I have made a deposit in them, a spiritual deposit. Keep it. Later on at the end of the text, add some, some earning to it when he talks about sanctifying them. Grow that. Cultivate that. Don't leave it as it is. Grow their understanding of who you are. But here he is praying the most essential thing for the most essential thing, and that is their spiritual protection, their spiritual preservation. And he's praying it specifically over them, right? Which you have given me. That's another reference to the 11 that are there. Does it include all of us? Yes, in a sense. He says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. In other words, when I was with them, I'm leaving, but as I've been with them for the last three years, I have protected them spiritually. I have preserved them spiritually. I have kept them in your name. I have protected the ones whom you gave me. I have kept them in your name. And look what he says here at the end of, in the middle of 12, right smack dab in the middle. 
I have guarded them. I don't think we have any idea how many times these men during this time of ministry, this three years with Jesus, how many times we know Jesus was under attack spiritually, physically. How many times did these men, how many times were they under spiritual attack? We saw an example of it earlier that night when Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you, and I have prayed that you would not lose your faith. Even these men were under spiritual attack. We didn't see any physical attack toward them. Jesus guarded them from that, but they were under spiritual attack. And who kept them? Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus is physically with them, knows when they're under spiritual attack, and is praying for them, and they might not even know what's going on. And listen to what he says. Here's the assurance of salvation. Right here. He says, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the one who has prophesied would be lost. He's speaking of Judas Iscariot. He says, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus didn't lose Judas. Jesus never had Judas. Judas never had Jesus. But Judas was divinely appointed to serve the role as the betrayer, acting in his own flesh and desires. He did precisely what he wanted to do, of his own volition. But I love that. I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. Again, he's referring to the elect. I have guarded them, and not one has been lost. Guess what? No elect person will ever be lost. Ever. Can you lose your salvation? No. He says right here. Why? Why can we not lose our salvation? Because he keeps us. (laughs) Because he guards us. Right? Oh, I love it. This should just boost you up build you up with what he's saying here and sadden you and and terrify you in a sense that there are those whom you will serve alongside of who you think are elect who aren't and who at some point will reveal who they truly are maybe when things don't go their way or calamity strikes and they curse god and walk away from him how did john deal with that phenomenon and we see that regularly in the church today he said those who were with us who went out they were never of us They were with us. They hung out with us. They represented a Christian in certain ways. But eventually when times got tough or they lost interest, they they bounced and they went out. And so they weren't actually ever truly of us. Now that doesn't mean that they're reprobate, that they'll never be saved. They could get saved at a later date. And we pray for them. So there's really two truths here. You have the assurance that the elect have, because he keeps us and guards us, we'll never lose it, but you'll also find yourself operating and living and and even serving at times alongside of people who aren't actually in Christ, who profess to be, but they are in word only, and maybe in some deed as well, but something, God God is not going to be mocked. God always reveals what's going on with people. At some point you see it and go, I don't know what happened with Sam. Well, I do. He was with us, but not of us. And so let's let's respond to Sam if we have opportunity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the likeliness is Sam's going to tell you he already knows Jesus. But we know he doesn't, so we keep staying on that. So firstly, he wants to protect them. He wants the Father to protect them spiritually. What is the spiritual part of us? That is what? Numero uno, the most important part of who we are. It is. I mean, what good does it do for a man to gain the world and lose his soul? There are so many ways the scripture talks about the preeminence of our spiritual life. It's not even funny. It'll make your head spin. So if you're a guy and you need to adjust your life and get to church and be a spiritual, take care of spiritual things, you need to start doing that ASAP. If you're with somebody who's not necessarily doing that, pray and encourage them to do it. Bring it to me. I'll work them over. And then I'll pray for you as you go to another church. It's a serious thing, and I don't want to take it lightly, but it is a serious thing. This is, this, is, this, is, this is what we're to be about, firstly spiritual. You know, if you know somebody who's not, especially with a guy or something, they're not doing this, that's, that's what you need to pray for. This, this needs to be a desire of yours to see that happen with your husband or spouse or whatever. 
or with gals. I guess it happens with gals too. It doesn't happen at my house. My wife's like always just all about reading the Bible and studying and all that and makes me look real bad sometimes because I'm like, duh. She's just on it because she loves Christ and wants to know Him and wants to study the Word so she can come to know Him. And that inspires me to be more disciplined and all that. But man, it's ultimately my responsibility as the head of the house in spiritual categories and physical categories in a sense, but to be a man who is after the Word and in the Word and treating spiritual things important. It's so bad at my house, we can't even watch a movie without me breaking it down and saying, Dude, that's apostasy right there. Did you hear that? It's Avengers, Phil. I know, but it's still apostasy. <laughs> I don't care. You know? And, and you just, don't you develop over time? You, you become such a spiritual person that you can't divorce regular everyday occurrences and things from who you are spiritually. This is what happens as you become more mature in the faith over time. You start seeing error in everything, and you start calling it out, and you're like, we're at the theater, you know? You just paid 15 bucks to critique this movie? Yes, I did. I would have paid 35. You just, just what you do. You hear error, you say, eh, the alarm goes off. Now, you want to become hypercritical, you know? Start wearing a big thing on your hat, and it says Pharisee over the front of it. You don't want to do that, but we need to call out error. We need to use the, the weapon that God has given us, right? But this, that's, that's, that's what happens over time. You just develop into that. But, you know, if you're disconnected from the connect points where God meets us with His grace, you're not going to church regularly. You're not getting to the Word you're going to be so underdeveloped. It's not even funny. You might get a letter from the Apostle Paul saying, I would have wrote to you and gave you some meat, but I had to get you back on the bottle because you're still a spiritual infant. This is what he wrote to some Christians. Come on, guys. Let's take it serious. Second, Jesus prays for the Father to protect their unity. Verse 11c, he says, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, this is a big thing for Jesus Jesus prays for unity. For, in, in the next section, he prays for all believers, and one of the primary things he prays for is unity. And this is a big problem in the church today in terms of unity. And some people will tell you doctrine divides. Uh, yes, they're correct, and it's supposed to. And, and when one church sees a particular doctrine in Scripture and, and puts their own kind of spin on it and then lands somewhere opposite to where the church has landed for 2,000 years, that's a church that you're going to end up being divided with. You just don't have a choice. But doctrine, the intention of doctrine is to, to unify believers, but doctrine must be correctly interpreted and understood for it to be effective. And so some people, because of because doctrine is dangerous, some pastors just jettison it all together and never talk about anything but, you know, lollipops and My Little Pony. And Christianity's fun. It's like a SpongeBob episode, you know? And they just get rid of doctrine because doctrine just causes too much trouble for us. Well, it's, it's your reluctance and... and Lack of desire to submit to the clear teachings of Scripture that's the problem, not the doctrine. You're the problem, not the doctrine. And in order for us to achieve unity, we've got to be aligned scripturally. And this is why if you go through membership at this church, we have you know, particular, a particular statement of faith that, that you need to read through and study and sign on the dotted line that you, you know, you may not understand everything perfectly, just as I don't, but you submit yourself to those biblical teachings, to the eldership here. Basically, what you're agreeing to do is to be unified with the rest of us here. And if you don't want to do that because you've got a different view of this or that, then maybe you're not ready for that. And we love you. But for the most part, we have particular things that we believe that we must all affirm together because if we don't, what's going to happen? We're going to have disunity, at least with one or two or whatever. And this is why it's important to have a statement of faith and some doctrines clearly drawn out that you affirm as a church. And as people come in, you say, this is what we're about. And if they say, I'm not about that, you say, well, hopefully you'll get there over time and we'll see what happens. And when they get there over time, then you pursue membership or whatever. If not, you know, you still love them and they can still attend. But... And, and I'll tell you what, it's even, it's even heightened even more 
for eldership or deaconship. You know, if you have one particular guy who has a view of something and you bring him into the elder board, then usually what happens is whatever the difference is with him, he's going to keep bringing that to your attention. And the next thing you know, that's all you talk about in your elder meetings. And the last thing I want to do is talk about some open-handed, debatable, secondary issue. I mean, if, if we've just appointed somebody to eldership who's still questioning the deity of Christ, we need to not be elders. But that's not the issue. It might be on some secondary issue. We want to do the best we can to avoid disunity, disharmony, right? Yeah, it's just the way it is in Scripture, man. But you might say, well, that's just so restrictive. And, you know, there's all these flavors of Christianity. There's one flavor of Christianity, and this is it. Now, we've come up with 33,000 denominations, or about 7,000 denominations, I think is more accurate. But for the most part, there's just one way. And we, we're, we're, man, we're not experts in it, but we have what we have. We've researched, we've studied, and this is who we are. We want to maintain unity. It is essential that we do that. Amen? It is. It's big because where there's discord, where there's disunity, what happens? Joy is gone. Strife is there. You can't effectively do ministry together. I mean, it's just, it's a nightmare. And Jesus says something to this effect. He says that their joy may be full or filled. He says that at the end of verse 13. What he's, what is, what he's saying actually here is that when, when the disciples know that they are being spiritually protected by the Father at all times, especially during tribulation, when they're enjoying the fruits of unity there, that results in joy being fulfilled in us. So, being protected and guarded spiritually, knowing that, living in unity with each other, doctrinal, scriptural unity with one, one another, it, it produces Jesus' joy in us. His joy is fulfilled in us is what he says there. Now we drop to three. The third thing Jesus prays for, he prays for the Father to protect them from the world and the devil in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says this, I have given them, again, he's praying, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Wow, is that not a truth right there? If you are a Christian, you've been taken out of the world and put in Christ. You don't fit into the world any longer. So what, how does the world respond to you? We don't like him anymore. He's not like us. In fact, we hate him. This is what he says. And he says, they're not in the world or not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we should be like Christ, meaning we're in the world, but not of it. And in fact, Christ left the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is praying for them ultimately to be protected as they operate and do ministry in the world. Protect them from what? The world, because it hates them. It wants to persecute them. And secondly, from the evil one, which is a direct reference to Satan, to the devil. Father, protect them from the world and protect them from the devil. Now, now, this prayer doesn't necessarily ensure that they'll be physically protected at all times from the world. I mean, Paul became an apostle later, and he was shipwrecked and whipped and beaten so many times. He's got a, his list of, 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 of persecutions incredible. You know, all of these men were, with the exception of John, and John was, in a sense, martyred. He was you know, thrown onto a, a stone island to live out the rest of his days. The rest of them were all killed in a violent fashion. So this is not a, Father, don't ever let them get killed prayer. This is just protect them in the world as they do their ministry until the appointed time. And in fact, Christians are indestructible until their appointed day comes. Nothing can take you out until that moment God has ordained. And so he's praying, protect them while they're in the world, because the world's going to hate them, it does hate them, and protect them from the evil one. There's a, an emphasis, again, on spiritual protection. And the world has certain allure, doesn't it? Of course it does. It's always tempting us and to think like it and, and respond like it and act like it and live like it. And so they need to be guarded and protected from that temptation, as well as the assaults of the evil one who will be on them constantly. He will be on them constantly, just as he was on Jesus 
constantly. Think of the wilderness. Well, if you're hungry, just turn these rocks into bread. Satan was on Jesus all the time, and he's going to be on them. And he's saying, Father, protect them. Protect them. Fourth, he prays to the Father for, lastly, for the Father to protect their sanctification. Verses 16 and 19. Sanctification has to do with becoming like Jesus, their growth, their spiritual development. He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, so how is a disciple, how is a Christian, how is a believer sanctified? Through the word, through the Bible. Again, if you're not in your Bible, you're not being sanctified. Men, be in your Bible, be at church. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now here he's talking about the mission. This is the great commission. I'm sending them. I'm coming to you. They're going out into the world. And he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Ultimately, what he's praying for is the good work that I have begun in them. Carry it to fruition. Protect them spiritually protect their unity and harmony together, protect them from the world and the devil, and protect and cultivate their growth. Sanctify them in the truth. In fact, a handful of these men, the truth was revealed directly through them and they recorded scripture. This is what Jesus prays for. This is his prayer for the disciples. Closing. I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. First, if we are in Christ, it's not because we prayed a prayer. It's not because we made a decision. It's not because we signed a card. And it's certainly not because we got baptized. It is because the Father took us out of the world and gave us to Christ, who manifested His Word to us through the Holy Spirit. Okay, we are in Christ because of the Father, not because of ourselves, and He deserves the glory. Remember the teaching here from Jesus. Those whom you gave me out of the world. The Father takes the elect in time and space. He takes them during those appointed times out of the world, and He puts them in Christ. Christ manifests the Father to them. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit today. Jesus did it personally with these disciples then. He left. He's at the right hand of the Father. Now this work is performed for him through the Holy Spirit. But I just want you to understand the basic fundamental truth of you're in Christ because the Father kindly and graciously and mercifully puts you in Christ. It's not because of what you did. All of your works and all of your efforts and anything that you would ever accomplish would not get you into Christ. In fact, Altogether, those things would just get you judgment and justice. So we're in Christ because of the Father. Second, Jesus' prayer for his disciples foreshadows his ministry as our great high priest. Like with the disciples, Jesus prays for our protection, unity, and sanctification. He does that now. And he always represents believers in a positive manner before the Father. Just as he prayed for them and acknowledged the good things associated with them, that's how he represents you and I right now. He does not mention our sins. He does not condemn us. Romans 8.34. He empathizes with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15. And lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25. As our advocate with the Father. 1 John 1 or 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. That's who the great high priest is. That's what he does currently for you. You see his active, ongoing ministry as the great high priest reflected in this prayer. What you see him doing for the disciples then is what he does for us now. And because of this, because of who he is and how he represents us and how he loves us and how he intercedes for us, how he represents us as our advocate to the Father, we can what? Approach his throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace in our times of need, Hebrews 4.16. Isn't that wonderful? 
Did you know that, and did you make the parallels that as you're reading his prayer here, that you're actually seeing a foreshadow of his ministry as our great high priest? And what he does for them reflects what he does for us now. How glorious, how wonderful. And third, lastly, believers are under the same spiritual protection the disciples were under nearly 2,000 years ago. The, the very protection that Jesus prayed for, that the Father graciously bestowed upon the disciples, is upon us now. We are under that same shielding arm, under the wing of our mighty God. In fact, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in guarding us in our spiritual protection. The entire Godhead is guarding our salvation. So much so that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's Romans 8, 38 and 39. Brothers and sisters, we are under the powerful spiritual protection of the Godhead. Stand firm and fight the good fight of faith at all times, especially during tribulation, especially during trials, especially during pain and during loss or persecution. If God is for us, who can stand against us? The answer is no one. What did Jesus say? Take heart, for our mighty King has overcome the world. And in Him, we are more than conquerors.